welcome back to Not Another Science podcast. I'm Alex. And I'm Hannah. This week, we're talking to Laura McWinney, who's an assistant professor in marine geography at Harriet Watt University, and Emily Haig, PhD candidate working with Lauren in the Institute of Life and Earth Sciences at Harriet Watt University. In this episode, we're diving into the ocean, quite literally, to learn more about Lauren and Emily's work which tries to better understand how humans impact marine animals so that they can inform marine management all around the world. I first met Lauren and Emily last year when I was taking Lauren's Geographic Information Systems course, or GIS, at Harriet Watt University. For someone who doesn't know what that is, GIS is a tool we can use to help visualise geographic data. In other words, turning data into maps. While this could have been a pretty laborious and dry topic, Lauren and Emily's enthusiasm and joy for teaching was infectious, and I think, hands down, it was one of the best courses I've ever done. So it was no-brainer, really, to invite Lauren and Emily onto the podcast, and luckily for us, they said yes. So if you want to know just what it is that makes Lauren and Emily so fun to listen to, then jump aboard, and I promise you this episode is going to be a whale of a time. But first, before we start, this podcast is sponsored by Griner Bio One, supplying laboratory, diagnostic and medical products to research institutions, higher education, the NHS and others across the UK. For details of the full product range, visit www.gbo.com. Hi, so I'm Lauren McQuinney. Um, I'm an assistant professor at Harriet Watt University. My pronouns are she, her. And in terms of who I am and what I do, my research spans a lot of different areas in terms of marine management. But in particular, my work focuses on how we can minimize and mitigate our impacts as humans on marine mammals in a variety of different places around the, around the world, including the Arctic and closer to home here in Scotland, too. So I'm Emily Haig. I'm a PhD student based at Harriet Watt University studying the cumulative human impacts to marine mammals uh, all around the UK. So when I talk about marine mammals, I mean whales, dolphins and seals. And my pronouns are she, her. So you work with the marine environment. So what is that and what role do people play in that system? Well, I work with spatial data, so I always think in spatial terms, I guess, when I, if you were asked me to probably to define that, it's a really hard one to define because I guess depending on your background, you might define that very differently. But obviously it's everything within in the marine realm in terms of the physical aspects, but also the, the biological components too. So I think the, the difficult part with the marine environment is sometimes where we draw the line in terms of where it ends on land because our coastal spaces are so dynamic. But where does the beach start? or stop, I should say, and, and the sea begin is sometimes a really difficult one for us to figure out. I don't know, Emily, if you what you would say. For a local example, so we're based in Edinburgh, Harriet Watt University, so we've got the Firth of Forth right on our doorstep, and that's a, an estuary. And I think they define that it turns into a marine environment at the Forth Road bridges and the Queen's Ferry bridges. So that's when it becomes over a certain salinity and, and the water is well mixed and counts as seawater, so as the marine environment. In terms of what role humans play in the marine system, I think for the most part, a lot of the time humans have exploited it like for hundreds of years. It's gone from whaling and now we're into fishing and we use the seas for shipping uh, all the things that we buy on Amazon and that kind of thing, food for travel for going on holiday, for recreation. So lots of ways that humans use it. And I think for me, I just love being by the sea. It makes me very happy. It makes my mental health a lot better when I'm having a bad day going look at the sea for a wee while. So yeah, I think it's a really integral part of a lot of our, our lives. 
What kind of marine life do you guys focus on and the main stresses they're exposed to? Both Emily and myself are kind of, I think, self-professed whale geeks, but more broadly, it's all marine mammals. And as, as Emily was saying earlier, so that's things like seals, but also whales, and to a lesser extent, things like otters, and actually polar bears are also categorized in that bigger group too. So it's basically, for the most part, my work falls around cetaceans. So that's these whales, dolphins, and porpoise. And yeah, in terms of the stressors, I guess, Emily, do you want to speak to the stressors? Yeah, sure. So just off the top of my head, this is, will definitely not be an exhaustive list, which is which is super sad, I suppose, but there's lots that can be done. So stresses for marine mammals, at least, would be things like shipping traffic and vessel activity, underwater noise from, say, construction from offshore wind farms or port developments, potentially overfishing. We could be competing with them for their prey species, or we could be disturbing their prey in other ways. Climate change, what are the stresses? I guess there's contaminants, so things like um, when we have natural disasters like oil spills that can affect both the animals themselves if they're in the direct proximity to the spill itself when it happens, but also if it damages or depletes their food source or their habitat. Also breathing in emissions, they are, they're all mammals, so they're like us, they're humans, they breathe air, so they are in an area where they've got contaminated. You can imagine like boats and things splurge out lots of horrible fuel deposits. So so the contaminant side of things, but also, you know, you've got disease and parasites and things like that, that we are increasingly spreading, um, unfortunately, through, I think maybe you've come across alien invasive species. So species that are introduced into other environments, they can, sometimes we don't think about that in the context of marine mammals, but they can also have an impacting factor to a far lesser extent. I guess another one that's kind of pertinent to near where we are just now is entanglement from either active or old fishing gear or just rope in the water. There was a humpback whale recently seen this winter and that was spotted with some signs that it had previously been entangled in the past but was had managed to free itself which is amazing but also really worrying that there's things like rope in the water that can cause some real problems for some marine mammals. Still on the topic of I suppose marine stressors is there a specific area of stressors that you look at in your research or do you cover the whole width and breadth of all of those different types? All my life I've always been super interested in marine mammals but I've also been a bit of a a harbour rat and a bit of a boat geek and hanging around lots of harbours and talking to people that have got boats and getting out on boats as well as much as I can so that I think that's naturally become something that I'm really interested in and the main bit of my research into all the cumulative impacts is definitely a focus more on the vessel activity side of things and I guess that aligns really well with Lauren's work because she's now my supervisor so I guess we've kind of naturally found each other and found that we're really interested in the same stressor which is awesome. Yeah, so as Emily said, it's basically all the stressors that can be associated with vessel traffic. And the unfortunate thing is that that in its own right, even you think that's kind of narrowing it down just to vessels. But the unfortunate thing is there's quite a few different types of stressors that can be associated. And of course, Emily mentioned them before, but you've got things like lethal impacts. So if a, if a boat hits a whale and strikes, it can kill it outright, just like roadkill, I guess, you know, that we would have in cars. But you can also then look at on a more chronic level. So things like noise pollution from boats. So noise is an integral part of marine mammals ability to exist. And they rely on, on sound in, in terms of communication and foraging, finding their prey basically for all their life functions. But then also, Emily again mentioned it there, so entanglement, so from fish, particular types of boating activity. So looking at, for instance, whale watching boats, disturbance 
from vessels constantly kind of following groups of animals can be a big issue and fishing activity in terms of entanglement so the likelihood of gear and where gear has been left and, and where the whales are using and that sort of thing so it's quite broad ranging even within even within vessel impacts when you think about um, even as a single stressor there's multiple multiple issues <laughs> Yeah, definitely. You know, when you were saying about acoustics, I suppose, of the vessels, is there a certain distance or something that they have to be away from animals or from these whales? Because like, is there a distance that they can hear the boats coming from? Or like, what is it that the boat is actually interfering with when it comes to the whales? In terms of the type of noise that vessels produce, it depends on the vessel, first of all. So the type of noise that a big, you can imagine these big container ships, they produce these low frequency noises. Low frequency sound can travel over really great distances. So it can be heard from very far away. And it's actually quite loud as well at the source. And then you've got smaller boats that have um, produced more mid-frequency to higher frequency type noises. So they are at the other end of the spectrum. So you can think about it in terms of pitch. So higher, higher pitch noises and then lower pitch noises. But they don't travel quite as far. So if an animal, for example, was around a boat that was a mid, mid or a small boat that was mid to low frequency noise, if it moved away from that boat by you know, a relatively set distance, it might not be as exposed to much noise. Whereas these big ships, their noise carries over far greater distances. So it's even more complex by the fact that the animals, so the species themselves and the sensitivity of the species also changes. So you have dolphins and you'll maybe have heard dolphins whistling. That's a night that they produce high frequency noises, right? So you can imagine that the way that acoustic works, something called acoustic masking can occur. So when you guys are in a restaurant or a bar and everybody's talking and we're all talking at a similar frequency, you sometimes can't hear the person next to you because it's just, it drowns out. So what happens is masking occurs. And so as humans, one of our responses is to kind of either we shout, we increase the, the energy in our call, if you like, to be heard over them, or we might wait until it gets quieter, or you might move closer to that person. And it's the same, the animals basically adopt similar coping kind of strategies as well. But that can obviously have a, a big energy cost to the animals too. But the problem is that when we look at low frequency noise, that travels over hundreds of kilometers sometimes um, you can hear these 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 noises and so other species of whales such as um, your blue whale fin whales they use low frequency they produce and use low frequency sound too so we don't truly understand the degree in terms of we are impacting those animals because we are introducing that same type of noise into their environment over huge distances these animals can be affected from even quite substantial ranges so again this is not up to the um, short answer, but there's there's a huge amount of complexity in terms of how we actually mitigate and figure out a way to make sure that we don't introduce too much noise to their environment. And for many species, we don't actually even really really understand how they even produce noise um, themselves. But we also don't understand, you know, in terms of how sensitive they are. We make the assumption kind of is that the noises they produce themselves are the noises that they can hear. But a lot of the time, we have data and information from animals that are in captivity. And those animals are somewhat compromised anyway, because they're in tanks. You can imagine it's like, you know, if you're bombarded with noise every day, you're hearing, it's like us as humans, when we get older, our sensitivity to noise goes down because we've bombarded our ears all our, all our lives compared to young children who can hear everything um, <laughs> sometimes, it would appear. So yeah, so it's the same with animals. So we, there's still a lot of big questions when it comes to just understand the fundamentals of how noise impacts marine mammals. It sounds like you've got a lot of these uh, old technologies that doesn't seem like there's much in place to mitigate their impact. But in terms of the newer things you're seeing, like you mentioned before, the offshore uh, wind farms, 
is there anything for these newer technologies that are being put in place to mitigate their impacts? Yes. So for the UK, at least, if there's anything that's being built that is predicted to be putting a lot of noise into the marine environment, they normally will have to have people on board or watching nearby called marine mammal observers or MMOs. So they will be watching the water all the time and also often listening as well with hydrophones to try and see or hear any marine mammals. And as soon as they spot anything, they have the power on that vessel or during that activity to stop all activity going on. And then there'll be an amount of time that they'll have to wait until they've not had any more sightings to give them a way of trying to make sure that the animals had time to move out of the area. So not that can be 30 minutes, an hour. Another thing that the offshore wind farms have been doing is something called a soft start. So if you imagine the piling turbines into the sea, which is basically just, if you imagine a nail into a wall, it's kind of the equivalent of that, but into the seabed. But rather than go all guns blazing right from the start, they'll build up the noise over a period of time. So in theory, it kind of would give anything that's closer to it a chance to be like, this is quite loud, I'm going to go out of here and give them like an hour or so to, to get out of the way. So there's there's definitely things being put into action right now to try and protect marine mammals from harm. And there's lots of new technologies being developed as well or trialled out. So there's like bubble curtains that can go around the construction of the offshore turbines. So the idea of that is that the bubbles would capture the noise and there'd be much less noise going out into the wider marine environment. The, the bubbles are actually really good at capturing noise. Which is really cool. So yeah, there's lots of things being done and I think it's something that most industries in the UK are super aware of that we've got loads of cool species in our waters that we should try and protect and I think it's in their interest as well not to harm them. So I have hoped that I guess when marine biologists and industries with some money work with sort of innovators and people that have got can come up with really cool stuff, there are really good ideas coming to the fore. So yeah, fingers crossed for lots more cool stuff. Are there actually any human interactions that are neutral or maybe even good? I can I can tell you my from my personal opinion that would be a, that would be a no. <laughs> you know I'm sure that's not particularly. Um, other people would absolutely and every right to disagree with me. I believe quite wholeheartedly is as much as I love whales and love being around them. The less interaction that humans have, generally speaking, with with wildlife in general, the better for the wildlife. We have cases all over the world where we have these friendly marine mammals, you know, solo animals that have taken up residence in harbours, you know, they'd be fr- you know, the friendly dolphin, the friendly beluga, and they get videos shared and it goes viral. And I cannot think of a single in case of a friendly marine mammal that has not ended up, unfortunately, dying as a result then of the interactions with humans, right? They get too habituated. These are wild animals, you know, they end up getting run over by boats. Yeah, so... It's a difficult pill to swallow for us humans who just desperately love to be around them more. But the truth is, no, the less we interact with them, the better, I think, for the whales. That would be my, as I said, that's my personal opinion. I think, so the only, there's two examples I can think of. And I think the first one would be disentanglement teams. So they get super close to whales because say a humpback's been reported with ropes wrapped around it they wouldn't probably get off and that might result in it dying eventually but this is that would kind of be a result of a human interaction anyway but that would be a good example of how when we do get close to them it's positive because we're helping them then but if there hadn't been that rope in the water in the first place then they, they wouldn't have been needed but I think one thing that I'm I guess I'm a big believer of is like land-based research and land-based watching 
Uh, I spent some time in Ocalab in Canada about um, six or seven years ago. I spent a few summers there. And their whole ethos for the past like 30 years is to just use hydrophones underwater and everything's based on land. All the pictures are taken from land, all the photo ID, all the research on movement and what noises the whales are making and even the vessel noise in that area is all done from land and they've been doing some awesome stuff there and over here I'm a big believer of trying to get more people out watching and appreciating the marine environment from land and around the UK you can see so many species super close uh, just by spending a bit of time at the shore so I think that can have a really positive impact on the marine mammals in that it makes people care about them more and care more about doing conservation measures for them and like thinking about recycling and not littering as much and all those kinds of things that we can do from land by watching them from land so yeah I guess the whales and the marine mammals we're watching don't necessarily know we're there and we're watching with big heart-shaped eyes yeah, but I think um, that interaction is is the way I like to see marine mammals the most. And I've seen so many species around Scotland just from ferreting around on cliffs and coastlines. Obviously, we're talking about human interactions with marine animals and research, but has the pandemic had any impact on this kind of research in conservation, for example? Because obviously during the pandemic, I don't think people would have been able to go out on boats or go to these remote parts of the world where they usually study. So... Have you noticed any impacts of the pandemic or been involved in any projects that have been impacted? Yeah, so one of the very, very small positive things to come out of the pandemic is for scientists, I guess, like ourselves that work in these sorts of fields that for the very first time in recent history and probably like, yeah, within, you know, in terms of us doing this sort of work, we've had the first time been able to collect what we true baseline data in a way for example in terms of the noise that's going on in the ocean so if you can imagine when we're trying to understand how much noise we're putting into a system it's got to be quiet for us to understand what true quiet because the ocean is a noisy place right there's lots of biological noise and things like that so that's all normal but for the first time ever we had places that shipping stopped boat traffic stopped vessel traffic stopped and having equipment out so we have underwater hydrophones out so we recorded all through the pandemic in many area, many of our study sites these areas and particularly one of the studies that I'm involved with down in, in New Zealand so they're capturing data underwater recordings before during and after their lockdown across there in the entrance to Auckland's main harbour and what we found was that the in real world terms what we call the listening space so the the area around an animal which they're able to hear got significantly bigger for the marine life so in terms of when you do all the fancy maths and calculations which we won't go into but the 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 fact is that these animals were able to hear further and they were present more during the lockdown in in the inner gulf and in the inner harbor you know towards so we detected them more often but the real real world listening space of both marine mammals but also fish species as well was increased because the the reduction in vessel noise so this is these like just background noise it's all the rumbling you can imagine if you go into a city environment and you might have like an ambulance go past you and it's like oh that's really loud you know but there's that constant drum right that you can hear in the background of just cars going on so you can maybe can't pinpoint a car but it's just that background you're rumbling and bustling versus if you're out in a field in the countryside and there's nothing so it's essentially that sort of situation in these inner coastal areas there's always a hubbub and 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 you don't really realize maybe what impact that might have on animals ability to hear each other to detect prey and one of the strange things is that when we look globally then at the impact we saw more and more sightings of animals you know in inner coastal waters I know there was reports in all the newspapers and from both marine and terrestrial environments you know of animals 
being seen in areas that they previously hadn't because we as humans were no longer using them. So yeah, so it's, it's, it's produced some really interesting findings for us. And the only other studies prior to that that we really had these sorts of very small windows of data for were actually after, right after 9-11. There was a study that was doing um, collecting biopsies on right whales on the, on the east coast of the States. And they found that stress hormones in the whales, just the period during after 9-11, that the stress hormones in these whales had actually reduced for just a short window. And they didn't, couldn't think initially, I think, you know, what was happening the cause. And then it was, it was kind of anecdotally linked to the fact that it was, it was just quieter. There was an area air traffic. So, so yeah, so we, we know that these animals in these areas are somewhat impacted by our, just our day-to-day goings on and the pandemic is no different. I guess from what I've noticed personally and locally, I guess, is a lot of people spent a lot more time outside and appreciating the blue spaces and realising like what's actually on the doorstep when they're at work all day nine to five normally, that there's actually dolphins going past the house or fields that haul out at certain times of year that nobody's paid much attention to before and all of a sudden we really appreciated seeing those things so I think personally I I feel like I've noticed locally a lot more care for for what's going on in the local area and I hope that that's universal really and I think in terms of science and conservationists while a lot of projects had to go on hold because we weren't allowed to travel or we weren't allowed to go to sea or to put equipment out I would say that this like move online has been amazing for like forming new collaborations and like everybody's in the same boat now we're all in the spare rooms or in weird places (laughs) under the stairs cupboards doing zoom calls and I certainly think it's been good for forming new collaborations and just making us all feel a bit more like a, a global collective rather than you only discuss what you're doing with people in the office at a coffee break and um, a lot of conferences I've gone to that have been moved online now you meet people from around the world because it's now accessible and there's not a problem of having to pay for airfare and having to take time off work and stuff because it's all online so I think there's there's some positives but yeah it's been a a rough few years but yeah I think there's some positives in there too. Yeah it's fantastic they've noticed such a, a bounce back ability of the wildlife as well I think that's amazing and other lessons from that that you're trying to implement when we're thinking about problems which don't seem so reversible like right now like climate change yeah the the beautiful horrible thing about marine noise as a stressor is that of all the stressors out there marine noise in particular is the one that if you stop the activity or change you know the nature of the activity or you know move the activity away the stressor is immediately stopped Okay, and there's not many stressors that are like that. Okay, you know that you can't, you know, you can you can bring about immediate effects. So it is the low hanging fruit, if you like, of stressors. We can actually do something about it. We know how to do stuff about it. We've just got to enact a lot of these things um, and be more aware and put suitable guidance and measures in place to actually do that. So it sounds awful, but it's one of the better stressors, right? We can we can actually we can do something about it. You know, our contaminants and the issues that we're dumping things into our marine systems. You know, these are big big tasks. Climate change is a big big task. But if it's one of these kind of like, uh, almost think of it like a little pressure valve, you know, if we can release just a little bit of pressure on them from from the impact of noise, you know, it might help things in the bigger scheme of things while we tackle these bigger issues to do with, for example, climate change as well, which are undoubtedly going to be impacting all our marine ecosystems. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Anything we can do to alleviate the pressures is surely a good thing. Are there any projects you're involved in at the moment that are linked to climate change or that you think people might be interested in knowing about? Yeah, so in terms of work that I'm involved with, well, I mentioned earlier the Arctic. So we are doing a lot of research in the Arctic at the moment 
because the Arctic, unfortunately, is melting at a great rate of knots, previously vessel traffic in the Arctic has been very much limited because of sea ice being there. And when we remove sea ice, unfortunately, that means that one of the major obstacles to shipping through the Arctic is now being removed for greater periods of time. And in some in some cases, throughout the whole year, Russia has kind of just announced that they are intending to ship throughout the year. As of next year, they're going to use icebreakers to go through the Russian Arctic. So it's an interesting situation up there. So and the animals, so the species that are up there, so bowheads, belugas, have not previously, you know, had that much exposure to a lot of vessel traffic. So vessel traffic has been increasing throughout the Arctic. Um, and there's an interesting component here because a lot of our work is obviously driven by the whales, but there's also the indigenous communities that are up there too that have not previously been exposed to this kind of level of industrialization that could come very legitimately within the next kind of decade to many areas throughout the Arctic. So a lot of the work that we are doing is trying to, for once, I guess, I feel very positive about this in the sense that we have a chance to be proactive for once in terms of the measures we put in place. So down here, all our work that me and Emily do in terms of trying to mitigate and put response in place to minimize vessel traffic disturbance and noise and things like that, the situation, the problem already arises (laughs) in these areas or has already arisen. You know, we recognize that there's an issue there. But in the Arctic, we have this opportunity to learn from what we know in more southerly and non-polar regions, I should say, and put suitable mitigation and, and management measures in place. So ship noise, the really interesting one is obviously it would be great to take if we if you move the boats out the area the noise moves with the boats so making sure that ships are maybe not going in these areas that are particularly sensitive to whales so areas like foraging grounds or breeding areas that we know that you know noise is particularly important to these animals in terms of what they're they're doing in these these regions but in some instances that's not going to be possible because the boats have to pass through you know certain certain channel it's maybe deep enough for example but we know that slowing boats down reduces for the most part the noise that they put out there's some small caveats in there but the the general the general thing is if you reduce the speed you reduce the noise and you also reduce the likelihood of any ship strike potentially being fatal as well so you can imagine again just like a car if you get hit by a car at 10 miles an hour going to be a lot better chance of you being okay than a car hitting you at 40 miles an hour it's the same for the whales and it also allows the whales potentially to you know be able to avoid the ship um, more easily as well so making sure that boats are slowing down when they're going through areas that we know are, are particularly um, maybe high risk for whales where there's a lot of whales around so we can very much kind of explore ways that what works we can work with the shipping companies with the vessel users so to understand for example where the areas are that they think they could slow down um, in terms of safety and navigation you've got ice to maneuver through there you've got really strong currents in some of these waterways making them aware you know as well of of the issues so a lot of these engineers that build these ships you know are not really aware of necessarily the issues and how they're impacting whales so we do one of our projects is the epicenter project which is an eu funded project and we are working with um, the likes of steneline the swedish company who they build ships um so they have a a model actually they developed this model to do with optimizing fuel consumption but it allows a ship to kind of tells a ship captain in real time almost you know in terms of what he should do to reduce the consumption of fuel by the vessel so it's for optimizing their their travel but it allows us to really real-time messages through the ships as well so one of the things in terms of producing information about like the whales being you know this is a sensitive sea area okay if we reduce the ship you know, going at this speed here, we could speed it up here. It wouldn't, what that would do in terms of their fuel consumption. And so trying to work with them, because it's an incentive, obviously, if you can, if you can do all these things that are environmentally friendly and still make all your targets as a, as a shipping industry, that's a lot more appealing for them to do that. And obviously at the moment as well, we're living in this world where every company is keen to look like they're going green. So it gives them kind of greener credentials to be part of these things. And we're working with another company called Acker, who's um, 
out up in, in, in Norway and they, they do ice modelling, so predicted ice modelling in terms of where the ice is breaking up for ships to reroute through. So they have a real time at reroute ships according to where ice is able to go through. And they're going to be, so they are, we are working with them in terms of their algorithms. So adding in whale, whale data as well. So in real time, theoretically, it's all a theoretical concept at the moment, because you can imagine actually getting real time data on where whales are in the Arctic is slightly challenging. But the idea being that, you know, if you actually had underwater acoustics, and they do do this actually in, in there's a couple of case studies on in, in the States who have underwater hydrophones. And basically when they pick up a whale, it sells a real time message to the boats around it to let them know that there's a, boat, a whale in the area. And to adopt like the whale protocol, so they slow down. So again, it's harnessing that technology. And but on a spatial level, what we're doing is exploring, like for example, exactly what kind of areas we need to get them to slow down in, what that looks like, you know, how long it's going to take them. So kind of running spatial scenarios uh, and modeling to kind of be able to inform their their decision making on these ships. Oh, that sounds amazing! What a useful project. Emily, are you also working on that project, or what is your PhD research looking at? The main focus of the PhD itself is to look at ways to show cumulative human impacts to marine mammals, so like all of those stresses that we were talking about earlier. I'm trying to come up with a way to kind of make it easier for people, so we'll term them stakeholders to understand, so like conservation managers and policymakers and consultants who are working on environmental impact assessment, scientists, and then school groups and educators, so trying to come up with ways that we can show how cumulative human impacts are affecting marine mammals. So I guess my main aim of this is to produce a mapping tool where if you imagine like all the different stresses that we talked about would be different layers. So you'd have a layer of on a map around the UK, where are the red areas where there's lots of risk of entanglement if a certain species goes there? And then where on another layer is there, say, lots of offshore wind farms being built in the next five years, so there's potentially quite a bit of noise there, even though they're doing the best to mitigate impacts. And then if you imagine all those layers on top of one another, what I hope is that there'd be a map that could really show some areas that are like pinging red saying, OK, we need to consider a bit more what we're doing here, maybe do some extra monitoring or maybe time activities so that they're not overlapping kind of thing. And then there might be areas where we can highlight that actually there's there's not much uh, human impacts we predict happening here. So maybe they're, if they've got lots of marine mammal species there, they're also good candidates for protection and give add a bit of weight to like creating perhaps some more protected areas. So that's my hope for the, the PhD itself but within that there's I'm focusing quite a bit on in one chapter on vessels as like we've been wittering on about for quite a while now about me and Lauren are super keen on the boat side of things yeah so I guess from that um together Lauren and myself kind of came up with the, the Scottish vessel project which like I should say right from the start is forming part of a chapter of my PhD but the data we're collecting there is so much and there's absolutely not going to be within my remit to, to analyse it as part of the PhD. So we're really encouraging other people, master's students or undergraduate students or even people at school or college who are interested to get in touch and get involved because we need volunteers to collect the data and help analyse the data. So yeah, if you're listening and this has like sparked your interest, please do um, get in touch. So the, the aim of the Scottish Vessel Project was to kind of characterise what vessel activity there is around the coastline of Scotland and using lots of different techniques. So I I guess one of the key questions I had, like from spending a lot of time around the coast of Scotland is, so 
to map out vessel activity, there's only really data available for larger vessels, so like tankers, uh, cruise ships, ferries, things that carry passengers. They're really large fishing vessels, so they have to transmit something called an automatic identification system message, which is the short term is AIS. So that data is accessible if you've got a way of uh, collecting it. But any of the smaller boats, uh, speedboats, recreational boats, people that just go out in summer, say they've got a, a sailboat or a yacht that they like to go out on, or smaller fishing vessels, like the smaller ones that you see maybe that catch the, the lobsters and the crabs, they don't necessarily transmit their information. So there's just no data on how many there are out there at any one time, where they are. So I just was kind of, when I was thinking about making the maps for my whole PhD, I was thinking, how on earth am I going to account for this gap that we really do know that there's so much that's missing when we map like the AIS data. So together with WDC Shorewatch, we've come up with uh, lots of different ways to try and get a handle on how much data is missing. So we, you can take part in things called dedicated vessel watches, which are basically go and stand anywhere all around Scotland and um, record all the vessels you see for however long you stood there for and you record what type they are, where they are, if you can see what they're doing. And also, if you're lucky enough, if you see them with a marine mammal as well, if there was like any interaction or if there was no interaction. So, so when I'm talking about interaction, it could be something like they could go and bow ride or the, say if it's dolphins, they could dive for longer or they could just suddenly disappear or they could go to the boat because they're quite inquisitive sometimes so they could go and have a nosy. So getting a record of that. Other ways we're collecting data on this, this boat activity is through putting time-lapse cameras up uh, at different sites around Scotland. So with the same kind of idea of having a look at what was there because um, there's not enough eyes on the water all the time. So the, the time-lapse cameras or, or even webcam footage of, say, harbours, we're using that to try and get a handle on, on what's there. Yeah, so lots of ways to get involved and in that we're collecting data. So yeah, I'd really encourage anyone who's listened to this and thought I really want to do something or get into thinking about doing something to, to have a Google for that and then, or just get in touch with us, with one of us. What a fascinating chat we had with Lauren and Emily and a huge thank you to both of them for joining us on the show. They're both involved in some really interesting projects all over the world, so we'll make sure we link to them in the show notes. And if you're interested in keeping up to date with Lauren and Emily's work, then we'll link to their Twitter accounts too. This podcast is brought to you by the Edinburgh University Science Media. In each episode, we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work, and find out about the science being done by our very own staff and students here at the university and beyond. If you have any feedback for us or if you'd like to get in touch with a question or a suggestion, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media, or at our Twitter at USCI, that's at E-U-S-C-I. You can also drop us an email at usci.podcast at gmail.com and you can find the show notes in the latest issue of the magazine at usci.org.uk. This episode was hosted by Hannah Muir and me, Alex Bailey. The podcast logo was designed by USCI Chief Editor, Apple Chew and the awesome podcast episode art was designed by Heather Jones, our social media and marketing genius. The intro music is an edited version of Funkarama by Kevin MacLeod, and the outro music is an edited version of Footballs in Space by Professor Colin Campbell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep it science. Science.